fourth revelation is from the book, sorry, the fourth lesson is from the book of Revelation. (laughs) The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a quick informational note. Normally we do the sermon on the passage that's immediately prior, but this one is on uh, Psalm 63, so the second lesson. So if you're wondering where I'm going and what I'm referencing, you can look back onto that page. I try to not use too many uh, Lord of the Rings references because I don't want to be a pastoral cliche. Pastors are, tend to be enamored with the whole series, and I am as well, but you know, I don't want to be that person, that guy that always has to quote Lord of the Rings, but sometimes it's just so apt. And one of the things that hangs in the background of Lord of the Rings is Bilbo's journey and the weariness that he has from his journey. And he says this to Gandalf, I feel like I need a holiday, a very long holiday, as I've told you before, probably a permanent holiday. I don't expect I shall return. In fact, I don't mean to. And I have made all the arrangements. I am old, Gandalf. I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. I need a change or something. Bilbo, you see, isn't just tired. He isn't just old. He doesn't even look old, but he's stretched thin internally. Weary is one of those great and terrible words in the English language, and it talks about more than just being physically tired, but it's this exhaustion of the soul. It's a soul ache that's also connected to how tired we are in life. I'm sure that none of you can relate to that whatsoever, especially at this time of year. But the rhythms of life can be joyful and comforting, and we can look forward to things, or without rest, without intentional reflection upon those rhythms that we inhabit, they can become very numbing, they can become very depleting. And Advent, you see, gives us a time to pause. It gives us a place to be intentionally reflective about the rhythms of our lives, to inspect them and to see if they are serving us well. Because all of us feel stretched too thin sometimes. Days line up in front of us, in the future and behind us, and often they just feel the same. There's no distinguishing characteristics of them. We get dressed, we go to work, We make dinner, we wash clothes, we pay bills, we walk the dog, we watch a show, we check email, and we go to bed, and we get up and do it again the next day. And not only do our tasks seem repetitive, but it's very difficult at times to connect those tasks to some larger purpose that makes sense of our world and makes sense of our rhythms. And so we may not 
be able to relate to David's circumstances, but we can sure relate to his situation and the feelings that he's having about his circumstances. This dryness, this numbness, this aching sense that something is missing, this weariness toward life. The heading of the psalm tells us it's a psalm of David when he was in the desert or the wilderness. And wilderness in the Bible is both a literal place, it's the place outside the city, it's the place of chaos, it's a place of danger, because when you leave the city and you leave the safety of the gates, you go into what's known as the wilderness. It's a place that Israel wanders after getting rescued out of Egypt. It's a literal place, but it's also used metaphorically and symbolically as this place of ache, as this place of desolation. It's a way of talking about emptiness. It's a way of talking about a soul that feels depleted and weary, feeling lost in the cosmos. And maybe in this moment it was both for David because he's expressing this metaphorical sense that something is missing. And yet there was a time in David's life where he did have to flee to the literal wilderness. Maybe you don't know this story, but you probably know the name Absalom. It's his third son who rebels against David, and he convinces Israel to take up arms against David. And David and his group of leaders has to flee into the wilderness. And so David is, has lost or is in the midst of losing his son, his kingdom, his people, his community, his home, and he's on the run. He's losing everything that is meaningful to him. And he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. What do we envision when we read that? What do you imagine? It sounds like a commendation of David's devotion, right? This is here in the Bible so that when we hit tough times, we will know that it's because our greatest loyalty and our greatest love is not, not toward God, and we have to get back there. He's lost everything and he still prays. Is that the lesson that we are meant to learn here? On my bed, I remembered you. I remember you. What does that convey? You remember something that is past. A memory is something that is not currently there and not currently happening. He thinks of God through the watches of the night. Why? Because he doesn't sense that God is with him. David wakes up seeking God, and he goes to bed doing the same thing. Rhythm, tedium, boredom. Nothing changes. There's no purpose that's connected to make his life make sense. This isn't a boast from David. It's about waiting on God. It's about this time where this emptiness and this weariness is settled in, and it's causing him sleepless nights. And God seems content to let him just shift in the wind. God seems content with this situation. 
where the king has been dethroned. He says, I I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. This is an expression of lack, not an expression of strength. Day and night, numbness and aching weariness. So maybe what we should be asking from this text is what thing in your life, if lost, would leave you weary? What are you giving your life to, to acquire, to maintain that if you fail, that life will then fail to make sense any longer? And it's more than likely a host of things. For some of us, it's that one thing, and the people around you, the people that live close to you probably know it, but it's more likely a host of things, things that we cannot let go of the non-negotiables in our lives. And if you want to know what they are, take time this Advent to reflect upon, to inspect your generalized anxiety, to inspect the moments of panic, to say, why am I so emotionally volatile this week or this month? To take a look at your perfectionism. What's behind that? What's driving it? Your judgmentalism, that can be scary. Why am I judgmental towards this person? And what does it tell me about the thing that really has my heart, the non-negotiables in my life? What is true and what those things do tell us, apart from identifying the root cause, they also tell us that we know at some level that all of those things are vulnerable. We get anxious about things because we know the control that we feel in this moment is vulnerable. When we succeed, we know that we're just a failure away from being a failure. Those non-negotiables, you see, are all vulnerable. And we find ourselves toiling and going numb with tedium over things that we know are vulnerable and that we may never get that we may never achieve having the non-negotiables in our lives. And it makes us sick, and it makes us tired, and it makes us exhausted. We may not get them. We may have them, acquire them, and then lose them. Or worse, we may get them and then find out that they aren't what they were cracked up to be, that we've spent our lives that we've gone around our families and our children and the things that we feel are really important to get to this thing, and it's left us numb, and it's left us disappointed. And so God gives us, friends, story after story after story of people losing everything. One, to tell us that losing things is not a symptom of disobedience. It's not a symptom of God punishing you because you've done something wrong. But secondly, and I think what we're meant to see here, is that we get these stories over and over of people losing everything who still are able to find life worth living if. They're still able to find life worth living if they still have God 
And the tension that we see here in this psalm, the tension with David is that he senses that he doesn't. But if he could find him, life would make sense again, despite his circumstances. And so if David is an example here, it's that he knows that he has a deep longing that only God can satisfy, that he knows that he is experiencing a weariness that only God can solve, not a change of circumstances, as valid as it is to want and pray for those things. If those become the non-negotiables in your life, you'll be no happier than when you had them. Our hope is finding God in the midst of of those circumstances, in the midst of loss and weariness. And what does David say? He says, because your love is better than life, he will seek him. His lips will, in fact, glorify him. He knows that in this moment of enormous loss, that the loss of God is far greater still that the loss of God is cosmically impoverishing. Anyone remember anything else about David's story? When did things start to go poorly in David's life? It's one of those characters where we, we see with precision this cascade of negative events in his life, and it all seems to pinpoint in the narrative to this one time where David made a series of terrible, horrible mistakes. He sleeps with Bathsheba, this woman who is at home while her husband is on the battlefield serving David, serving the king's interests, and he gets her pregnant, and then he tries to cover it up by sending Uriah, where? To the front lines of the battle, hoping, thinking, that Uriah will be killed. He's more likely to die on the front lines than what happens he does. I mean, this is, this is grade-A, corrupt, abusive behavior. And Nathan, the prophet, finds out. And Nathan is this squirrely, wily type of prophet that you don't want to come confront you because he makes up this story when he goes to David. And he tells the story about this no-good king that everyone would hate, including David. And David's like, yeah, we should kill that guy. And Nathan said, well, that guy is you, David. And David just dissembles into just awful repentance. And he says to David, the sword will never depart from your household. In other words, you have permanently poisoned your family by abusing your power. You've sown seeds of bitterness and corruption and conspiracy in your household that you will never outlive. You'll never be able to undo. That's how deep and wide this conspiracy has gone. And in the following years, Absalom's name comes up again and again. Absalom kills his brother. And he convinces Israel to follow him instead of David, and he pushes his father out of Jerusalem. And so not only is David in the wilderness, not only has he lost everything, but worse than that, he knows that it's his fault. He knows he's the cause 
essentially, of this. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a king. He's failed as a follower of God. He's utterly ruined. And what does he cling to? Where does he go? The last thing that he has left, he says his love, God's love, is better than life. And that sounds sort of like this premature glorification to where something that we would, be, would kind of chastise someone to say in a moment of tremendous loss, yeah, but everything's fine because I've got, I've got God. And that's not what he is saying. The Hebrew word for love here is chesed. It's this huge word, and it's bigger than our word for love. It means loyal, devotion, everlasting kindness. It means sacrificial faithfulness. Hesed is binding yourself to someone no matter what. No matter what comes, I will be here and I will be for you. It's a love that's willing to put itself in danger. And friends, that's what, that's what Advent is. Advent is a celebration of a God who chooses to put himself in danger for failures like David and for failures like me and failures like you. We should note here that this said doesn't run indulgently in the background of David's life. It doesn't run indulgently in the background of our lives as we wreck our lives and we wreck others' lives. It doesn't empower our wrongdoing with a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want because I can always dial this number and get this get-out-of-jail-free card. You see, Psalm 51, which chronicles David's repentance and him dealing with this anguish, it comes before 63. David has come to the end of himself. He's overcome by grief, and he repents. And he says, I can't live any longer this way. I've destroyed my life. I've destroyed my household. I've destroyed my kingdom, and I can't live this way anymore. I can't continue to push away the one thing that's worth living for. And the hard thing about this is that Nathan brings God's hesed. Nathan brings God's love in the form of rebuke. It's painful, but it's ultimately protective. It's ultimately meant to pull David out of this death spiral that he is responsible for. The sword not departing from his house isn't this eye for an eye quid pro quo type of thing, that you've done this and now I will hand out these punitive measures to make you pay for what you've done. That's not what's going on. What Nathan is doing and what he's saying is predictive far more than it's punitive. He's saying, you've made a wreck of your life, and you're probably not going to get to the end of life with everything coming back together perfectly as you would have envisioned it and wanted it. But what we also need to see is that even tested by David's megalomania, David's abuse, David's murder of someone else to cover up his own impropriety, in spite of all those things, God's faithfulness 
remains. It's not an inoculation against consequences, but it's a foundation for hope in the midst of them. In the midst of you and I making a mess of our lives, we can still hold on to a love that is better than life because when life betrays us, God's covenant faithfulness is still there. It's still accessible. Do you see, friends, David is driven into the wilderness for his sins. But when Jesus comes, he is driven into the wilderness for ours. Jesus is driven into the wilderness and to the cross to show us that no matter what the danger, he will not say no to it for you and for me. That's has said. That is putting itself at risk for someone who is beloved. And that's what happens. That's what begins to happen at Advent. And so let's lean into that as we go through this season. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would find your love, your faithfulness, your everlasting kindness to be at the root of our story. We know if we are in you that, is, that it is. But we are often in that place that we question whether it is. We question whether you have left us. We question whether our, the experience of the circumstances that we're going through right now tells us that once and for all, you've given up on us. You're done with us. You want nothing to do with us. And I pray that while we see and lament the fact that consequences happen and that we can be responsible for them, that they don't mean you've left us. They may be a means for you to get to us. And I pray that we would be open to that. I pray that we would see you in the midst of them, in the midst of loss and in the midst of weariness. I pray that you would encourage us individually. I pray you would encourage us as a church this Advent. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.